Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, it's filmmaker Alex Kendrick. He's involved in a new project in association with Family Life, a movie in theaters for two nights depicting a variety of parenting stages and situations. Then from Duck Dynasty, it's Phil Robertson discussing his content that was blocked from Facebook, views on freedom of speech, and his new online series. Also, you'll meet Daniel Ritchie, who's faced adversity in his life as a result of being born without arms. He highlights the value of life and the expression of God's grace in the midst of his affliction. Then from Lifeway Christian Resources, it's Eric Geiger. He's written a book about leadership principles and what could cause a person to encounter moral failure. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Ryan and Selena Frederick. They relate the importance of being determined to build and preserve a strong marriage, emphasizing specific areas of improvement. Then with some principles about overcoming worry, you'll be hearing some practical insights from author and speaker Barb Roos. Then it's Travis Weber of Family Research Council dissecting an exchange at a recent congressional hearing in which the nominee for Secretary of State faced challenges from a senator about his convictions rooted in his Christian faith. Finally, from Focus on the Family, it's Glenn Lutchens offering insight for those who have elderly parents, including various issues that may be encountered. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Alex Kendrick has been involved with movies such as War Room, Fireproof, and others. He's an executive producer and writer of the new film, Like Arrows, in theaters May 1st and 3rd. It's presented by Family Life in correlation with its launch of The Art of Parenting. The film depicts different stages and situations for parents. To elaborate, this is Alex Kendrick. Yeah, you know, it started in 2016. Bob Lapine over at Family Life gave me a call and we met. They were working on a new curriculum, a video curriculum called The Art of Parenting. They had previously done two very successful Bible study curriculums on the art of marriage and then stepping up, which was about courageous fatherhood. So they they thought it appropriate to do one on the art of parenting, and it's it's sorely needed. And so as they were putting this together, Bob had the idea for each of the uh, curriculum sections to do a mini-movie that kind of dramatized the principles in that section. So as we began talking about how that might look, we realized that these six mini-movies probably could be linked to tell one story because the family that we were focusing on was dealing with common parenting issues at the stages that we all deal with them, you know, from toddler to teenager to young adulthood. And, and um, you know, some, some kids are prodigal. Some are, are uh, you know, go with the flow, easy, easy, easy to raise, and, you know, e- even dealing with adoption and things like that. So we wrote out this long-form story, and, um, and it, it turned out so well because when we filmed it, we did realize it did work as a feature film. And so uh, we released it as like arrows and let audiences see it. And, it, and it had a gr- they had a great response. We're going to put it in theaters nationwide, May the 1st and May the 3rd, so everyone can see it. But it, you know, it really is an inspirational, entertaining story that uh, dramatizes the, the – the, state of parenting today and how we can navigate that using biblical principles. 
What would you say would be maybe one or two of the biggest differences in the approach to parenting from a biblical perspective versus what this couple tried out when they were first getting started? Yeah, so uh, from a biblical perspective, we would say that when you love your kids as God intended, it's easier for them to believe that God loves them. And ultimately, we believe that we're accountable to God. We're not just, you know, here uh, floating matter in space. We're, we're, uh, we're, we're created by God. We're given a character, a personality, natural abilities that we can develop and practice and do better at. And so we, we, we are saying in this movie that your children are kind of a homework assignment from the Lord, that you're to find out how God wired them and nurture that and teach them how to love the Lord by doing it yourself, how to love them so that when they love God, um, you know, they, they have the concept down. You know, my, my father truly loves me. I believe that my heavenly father truly loves me. And, and so from a biblical perspective, we, we want to you know, teach people that, that when you apply God's ways and God's principles, it is well worth it, and it raises the likelihood that, they, that, that you know, things turn out well, especially when there are tragedies, that you know how to handle those things. And, the, and it's not, you know, we're not just here by chance, and tragedies are, you know, we got to look around for somebody to blame. You know, so uh, doing it God's way versus doing it the world's way is starkly different, and we hope to, to paint a picture that doing it the Lord's way and honoring the Lord is, uh, is, is more than worth it. Well, I really do like the title of the film, Like Arrows. Tell me how you came up with that. Like Arrows comes from the proverb that talks about children being like arrows in a man's quiver, and blessed is the man whose, whose quiver is full of them. And so an arrow is going to go to a place that, that we're, we're not at. You know, when a warrior shoots an arrow, he's trying to accomplish something at a distance far away from where he's at. We're launching our kids into the future, a future that we won't necessarily see. And so we want them to, to hit the target. We want them to, um, you know, be sharp. We want them to, uh, you know, live a life that uh, is, is productive for the Lord. So when a warrior crafts his arrow, he wants to make sure that it's straight, that it's uh, sharp, that it accomplishes the goal that he sets it to accomplish and hits the target. So, and so that I see the analogy, and for, as a parent, I want my six children uh, to, to hit the target God has for them. And so um, we, we thought Like Arrows was a, was a proper title for this project. Alex Kendrick here on The Intersection. Find out more about the film in theaters May 1st and 3rd by going to familylifeministries.org front slash Like Arrows. Well, next, it's Phil Robertson of Duck Commander and the television show Duck Dynasty, as well as the new show on CRTV entitled In the Woods with Phil. In a recent conversation with me, he discussed his recent experience with Facebook blocking some of his content and shared comments about other issues as well. From that conversation, this is Phil Robertson. One of the problems we have is if you show fish being skinned on Facebook, Mm -hmm. you're violent. That's too violent of content. (laughs) This started all about four or five, all three months ago, back during duck season. First, they said it was too violent to show a duck being plucked and uh, and chopping the head and the feet off and gutting the duck and then making a duck gumbo. I was showing people how to make a duck gumbo. You have to go get your ducks. By the way, ducks are in the world. They are number, the number one bird for foods consumption for the world. Ducks are. They're ahead no of chicken. chickens or turkeys. 
So it's pretty amazing. So wow. I, we did a segment, filmed the duck being plucked, and when I cleaned the ducks, I came over here, and then they finished it up by watching me show them how to make a gumbo. Well, Zuckerberg and his team, they axed that, <clears throat> too violent. So about a week or ten days ago, they showed me skinning catfish, taking the skin off catfish, and we were going to have a fish fry. I showed them how to do that, and they balked at that, too. Now, now in the last three days, Zuckerberg and his team, because I, I, I went on Facebook and gave him about a 15-minute <laughs> speech <laughs> on on what uh, depriving us of our abridging uh, freedom of speech is all about. So they offered me an apology, and they apologized wow. for, for saying it was too violent. So they did apologize about it. But throughout the country, Bob, what they're doing, it really wasn't that that they were after. They right. know that I, that I point people to Jesus, and I preach the gospel. That's what they're really after. The film crew came down from the CR our production crew, and I sat on the porch, and I basically just told Zuckerberg personally that whether they got it to him personally, I wanted him to. I basically told him I loved him, but he was off base, and that you can't go around and abridge, deprive, limit in scope or content. Abridge means you cannot, you cannot thwart the transfer of information the freedom we have to speak freely, speak our mind, you cannot mess with that. I basically told him that. So I chided him just a little bit, and I invited him down. I said, why don't you fly down, and we'll have a Bible study, and we'll, we'll feed you something that we catch off the river out here in the woods. And I said, we get to know each other. I said, you just need to lighten up because the government is fixed to come down on you all for the way you're operating. You just can't do that. You know, selling people's information to other people and all that, the privacy thing. I don't care what they do with the information I give them at all. I'm not worried about private. I'll just let everybody know and say, hey, you can take this information I'm giving you and give it to anybody. I don't care. But uh, what I do care about is we're not being able to openly speak about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and biblical things. Well, tell me about the show. It's called In the Woods with Phil. What do you do there? Everything from <laughs> from how to raise godly children, I raise four sons, take the scriptures, teach them to obey their parents, to respect their elders, to obey law enforcement, to salute the flag, to stand with your hand on your heart. You, you, we teach, I go through a series of you begin when they're just small children crawling around on the floor. You begin to teach them discipline, so they're to be taught. Uh, we uh, we delve with that. They're to be uh, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness. How to be do what's right. Love God, love your neighbor. And I said, if we if we keep going with this thing, we've tried the no God thing from the sixty the Supreme Court decisions. They took prayer out of our schools, and then they took the scriptures out of our schools. You can't read a Bible in any institution of learning. And now only the theory of evolution can be taught. No Bibles anywhere. So we ran God out of the school system. He's been out of Hollywood for years. The news media have run him out of there. The Democratic Party, they booed him out on one of these 
couple of cycles ago. No more God in their platform. So we've tried the no God thing, Bob, for about 60 years. My question to America is, how's that going for us? Mm. How's that working for us? It's pathetic to watch. Phil Robertson here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website duckcommander.com. To find out about the new show, you can go to crtv.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, you'll hear from Daniel Ritchie, author of the book, My Affliction for His Glory, Living Out Your Identity in Christ. He shared about matters related to identity, the value of life, and God's glory in affliction related to his experience of having been born without arms. Here now is Daniel Ritchie. Much of my struggle in just having to live life without arms, even as a little kid, it was uh, there were some physical issues for sure, but the the emotional issues and, and having to overcome a lot of that pain and a lot of that almost the mentality of the world stacked against me was was hard. I mean, literally from the moment I was born, uh, doctors told my parents, your your son is never going to never going to write, never going to be able to live a fully independent adult life. You're going to have to care for him for, for all of his life. And so there was this sensation that, um, even in the doctor's professional opinion, that, that I was going to be a failure and that I was going to be uh, a burden more than anything. And so um, trying my best to, to work through that as, as a kid certainly presented its challenges, but uh, God, God gave me some talented feet. Uh, thank goodness. Mm. And even as a kid, um, I just very naturally, I would, I would grab crayons with in, in between my toes and color in my coloring books or, uh, stack blocks, e- even as a little kid. But, um, the, the physical really seemed to, to come together seamlessly, um, in, in terms of progress and as a kid and, and doing all the things other kids did, but it was the, it was the words of others that I think, especially in my developmental years, started to stack up and people letting me know how different I was. And that uh, that really created, I think, in my own heart, a lot of pain and isolation and, and darkness. Tell me just a bit about how God intervened in your life and helped you to understand more about your identity, especially your identity in Him. Yeah, uh, man, I, you know, I grew up in church, but just never, um, man, never submitted to Jesus as Lord and until age 15. And, um, man, when, when I was 15 years old, it was just like God, um, God through his word, especially through John chapter three and just seeing how much God loved me. And, and my hang up was always, how can God love me? even though I don't have arms. And I remember being that 15-year-old boy and realizing God's biggest issue with me is not my armlessness. God's, God's biggest issue with me is my sin. And that God loved me so much that he sent this son to this earth to live a perfect life, to die the death due me so that I could be credited with, with his righteousness and that I can be given um, uh, eternal life. And man, that that changed the game to know and understand that God had done all the heavy lifting to love me and I had ignored it for so long. And, um, as I, as I became a believer and just rested and trusted in Christ to watch, to watch how he had, um, taken the bitterness and that frustration and that hatred that I had, especially towards people 
and he put in this, uh, this heart now of joy and patience and love for people. Like I, I suddenly had this gospel reality in my life and I wanted to share that with, with other people. I wanted them uh, to have the same hope and to have the same joy and to have the same uh, purpose in, in making my life ab- about God and his glory and, and to watch just man, how God just changed my life in so many ways in just a matter of months. Uh, man, it, it is something I'm never going to forget, e- even as I look back now. Uh, gosh, 18 years back to back to that little 15-year-old me and, uh, and how God just truly changed my life. Daniel Ritchie here on The Intersection. You can learn more through his website, Daniel Ritchie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E dot O-R-G. While Eric Geiger is Senior Vice President at Lifeway Christian Resources, recently he discussed with me some biblical leadership principles in light of high-profile failures by some leaders. As he relates in the book, How to Ruin Your Life and Starting Over When You Do, incorporating principles relative to the life of King David. This is Eric Geiger now. We had a a time with my leadership team in one particular meeting where we spent time just praying for situations that we that we were aware of that were really breaking our hearts that we were burdened for. And we, it was a very intense meeting um, where we just, there was a lot of crying, a lot of confessing, a lot of uh, just begging God to intervene for these people that we, that we care a lot about. And then after that, uh, several of my staff actually said, Eric, it'd be great if you challenged all of our employees in, in, in the division that I lead. So maybe a week or so later, we had about 650 staff in the room, and, and I challenged the team to guard their own hearts, to, to, hey, any of us can fall. And I looked at David's implosion, King David, in Second Samuel 11, and just really poured out my heart to our team. And one of our leaders who oversees all the books that we publish, she came to me and said, Eric, I really think that needs to be, that really needs to be a book. And so mm. that's mm. that's how it started. That was 18 months ago. You know, those stories that of lives that were imploding 18 months ago now are old news and there's there seems to always be a new set of stories which is what's very very sobering about about this reality to a certain degree all of us are called into a leadership role to as it's been said to lead somebody and when you have right. high profile people and there are very public falls that take place and you have moral failures and and things of that sort, you know, you really do maybe, and I think your response and your team's response, so instructive for all of us, you know, it should be something that breaks our hearts. It really reminds us I do think about the fallibility of our leaders because, you know, thank the Lord he uses imperfect people. Otherwise, all of us would be disqualified. But we also have totally. to recognize that the people that are placed in in leadership do, you know, they do have human fallibility. So what do you find to be some of the reasons why leaders fall? You mentioned this, that it's not only leaders, but it's also regular, normal yep. people that are struggling too and imploding. And the leaders, they, they're more prominent. You know, we, we see them in the news feeds and on our social media feeds more more frequently, but they're not more not more prevalent. There's people in our neighborhoods and our families and in our churches that, that are making an absolute mess of their lives as well. And the common factors, I think, with both leaders and, you know, 
regular people, if you look at David's fall, you see you see in the book I mentioned three different things that really lead to his downfall. First, he was isolated. He had pulled himself away from people who would have held him accountable. And so he didn't have people around him to stop him from the foolishness of pursuing Bathsheba, um, who was married to one of his own men. He, he had people around him who, who were just impressed with him, who would have uh, told him anything he wanted to hear and would have carried out any of his orders. And so when we're isolated, when a leader or, in, or anybody is isolated and isn't surrounded by people who will speak truth into that person's life, who will confront the person when foolishness is taking place, isolation will lead to a downfall. The other thing you see in David is he was bored. So verse 2 of Second Samuel 11, he gets up from his bed, he walks around on the roof of the palace, and he's looking for something. He's, he's, he's restless. This is the same David that at other points in his, in his life, he, he would wake up the dawn with singing. He was so satisfied in God. He was praising the Lord and filled with joy because um, the Lord had, had satisfied him and quenched him. But the night on the roof, he wasn't satisfied and quenched in God. And so he's, he's strolling around. He's looking for something. So I've had people say, man, I'm in a bored season in my marriage, or, or I'm bored in my career, or, or I'm bored um, with just this phase of life. And any time that we are bored, it means that we are not looking at the Lord because the Lord is never boring. He's always satisfying and always quenching. And so if someone's bored, they're going to pursue other things, and those things often will destroy us. So you see David is isolated, he's bored, and then, and then lastly, you see David filled with pride, and pride always goes before destruction. He, he felt entitled to bring this woman into his palace. I'm the king. I deserve anything I want. And so whenever we, we are filled with entitlement and we are lacking in gratitude for what the Lord has given us, we, we are headed towards destruction. Eric Geiger here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to ruinyourlife.net. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you could listen to or download full conversations from recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection Podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more when you visit faithradio.org. Also, when you go to the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and you can get connected to video content Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can get there through the programming section at faithradio.org. Well, Ryan and Selena Frederick talked with me recently. They are the co-founders of the website fiercemarriage.com. They discuss principles they relate in the book Fierce Marriage, Radically Pursuing Each Other in Light of Christ's Relentless Love, providing insight into a number of different areas affecting marriage. Here are Ryan and Selena Frederick. We kind of grew up in church and had our faith, but I feel like it was really, okay, this is our, this is our faith. This is Jesus. This is where we are walking through conflict and walking through the possibility of, of death. And we had, we had nowhere else to go. And Jesus 
definitely became more of the rock if he wasn't already um and and the center of why our marriage you know the center of our marriage and the foundation of our marriage but it was a it was a challenging challenging time you know going over there and I'm going over there to work for the family and I'm super excited about riding horses and then my husband's sick the whole time and they're just thinking why is he not working and helping and I'm getting mad at him for being sick but then I'm mad at myself for yeah. you know being mad at my husband right. for being sick you know you can't be mad at your spouse for being sick um so there there was just a lot of like inner conflict that I was dealing with as a wife and trying to overcome and figure out you know why why are we going through this why does he have to do this you know and then we're having to have heart surgery and there's a little bit of I think I feel like ignorance was bliss at some point because you're, you know, you're 20 and 21. You're not understanding kind of what you're missing out in life yet. And now that we're in our thirties and looking back, we're like, wow, our whole, this wouldn't have happened. Our kids wouldn't have happened. Our, you know, this ministry would not have happened. Yes. God is sovereign and could have, and has Mm -hmm. plans, you know, over us. Um, But it, it just looking back, it's, it just has become more of a, a rich experience for us. And Yeah, and to be honest, we didn't really understand the weight of it until many right, years later. Right, And especially in this book that, that we're talking about, uh, is it, it becomes kind of the foundation of mm-hmm. really our marriage ministry, right? Yeah. So we didn't start Fierce Marriage until we were almost 10 years married. Yeah. We're going on 15, so it's been around for almost for about five years. And this book is written from this from the perspective of, you know, a lot of us are, we have a heart condition mm-hmm. and it's killing us. And we are taking Tylenol when we need the hands of a skilled heart surgeon. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and so what that looks like is we, we all are sinners, right? Mm-hmm. We're all fallen, but you know, we're, but we need to, we need, instead of just taking kind of pop psychology, uh, behavioral, axioms, like, and behavioral changes, yeah. and those things are all really good. And in some cases they're very needed, but if we don't deal with the root heart issue, initially the sickness, first, yeah. and we need a, we need a skilled surgeon to do that. And Jesus is, is the only person uh, right. up to the task. <laughs> right. And that's to, to kind of get into our heart, to transform our hearts. And from that transformation is where we find mm-hmm. the, the strength and the, the means to live out this fierce marriage we talk about, which mm-hmm. is a marriage that's after God's heart, that's pursuing each other as Christ has pursued us relentlessly, selflessly, all those things. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that phrase, fierce marriage and drill down just a bit. That's actually the ministry that you launched back in 2013. You've got this new book out called Fierce Marriage. So, Selena, tell me why it is that the two of you really chose that phrase or those words to uh, to really camp out on here. Yeah, no, I'll claim that one. I I, <laughs> I came up with that name. You were the branding genius. I All right, there we go. Genius on that. But my husband usually gets all the branding um, kudos, so okay. I'm going I'm to take that one. No. Okay, that's that's <laughs> um, so no, noted. He, <laughs> he uh, we we came about that. I mean, Ryan was saying it 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 takes a fierce tenacity to never give up and never give in, and that's kind of something that we put on our website and marked that with. But again, that fierce tenacity really comes from uh, Jesus. It really comes from knowing, you know, where we are rooted in and because you know god is our jesus is our our surgeon he's the one that we come into this marriage thinking oh yay it's going to be so happy and great and wonderful not realizing that we are sick we have this condition called sin and again it's jesus that we need to come in and and see that bacteria see that sin and say i'm gonna you know he's going to come and transform our hearts but it's not until we recognize that, that we can really have a fierce marriage. I think sometimes people look at fierce marriage and say, oh, I want a fierce marriage. I want that. And it's like, it's great. And yes, we want people to have a fierce marriage, but we want even more so that the understanding is that 
the tenacity comes because of Jesus and the tenacity comes because of what he's done in our hearts and the way he's, you know, healed us and, and transformed us day in and day out. Ryan and Selena Frederick here on The Intersection. The website address is fiercemarriage.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's author and speaker Barb Roos, who presented some insight and encouragement with regard to the operation of worry and overcoming it based on her book, Winning the Worry Battle, Life Lessons from the Book of Joshua. Here now is Barb Roos. When I was on staff at my local church, uh, I was a part of a weekend message series, and our pastor asked us to choose someone in the Bible that we admired who had courageous faith. I chose Joshua, and in fact, I actually went skydiving as part of that experience, so that was one of those crazy things. But Joshua, when we meet him in Scripture, he is this valiant warrior. He's with Moses when the Israelites leave Egypt, and you see Joshua behind the scenes fighting on the battlefield, and he's Moses' assistant, and one day he becomes the leader of the Israelites after Moses' death. But in Joshua chapter 1, I found it intriguing that in the early verses, God repeated the same phrase over and over again, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or discouraged. And I thought it was unique and interesting that God would keep repeating these words to a man that we knew was brave and strong on the battlefield. And I thought that this was a place to explore whether or not Joshua had to deal with his own worry battle. So if you had to describe worry or anxiety, what would be a working definition? The definition of worry is when we are tortured by disturbing thoughts. I equate worry to worry flicks. Most of us are familiar with Netflix streaming media. Mm -hmm. Worry is when we have these awful mental movies in our mind, if you have a loved one who is supposed to get to your house by 8 o'clock, and if they're not there by 8.15 and they don't text and call, our mind starts churning, and often we jump to the worst-case scenario, that they've been in a wreck, they're dead in a ditch. Worry is those negative mental movies that we play in our mind over and over again, like worry flicks. Anxiety and worry are pretty similar, and some people use them interchangeably. But anxiety, I equate with the physical. That's that sick feeling in our stomach. It's the nervousness. It's the stressed out feeling. It's the sweaty palms. And those kinds of physical reactions to what we're either experiencing or the negative movie we're playing in our mind. Well, as we talk about some practical steps that people can take, you talked about identifying some areas in the book of Joshua. When we are sensing those images in our mind, that video playing over and over again, and then we're, we're gravitating toward the worst-case scenario, what are some principles from the book of Joshua, generally speaking, that can be applied when we're recognizing, hey, that movie's playing? This was one of my favorite parts of the project, because as I studied the practical and powerful principles of Joshua, I realized that God has given us some fighting friends. And I use, my daughter is an officer in the U.S. military. When she was at West Point, she was taught how to use a variety of tools, equipment. And God has given us some spirit-enabled tools of peace and courage and strength. 
what I realized was like my daughter, she had to wake up and drill every day to use those tools. The same goes for us. We have to wake up every day. And the difference between being a worrier and a warrior is how well we know how to use the tools that God has given us. So in the book, I create some techniques from the story of Joshua. Uh, one of them is the God morning, God night root technique. And that is something I do myself. When I wake up in the morning, there are five promises that I repeat of God to myself in the morning. I call it God morning. Statistics tell us that worry surges first thing in the morning and often surges late at night. Mm. So God morning, God night, God night technique. And that's from Joshua 1.8 where God says, study this word, this book of instruction continually, meditate on it day and night. So throughout the book, I create techniques to match along with what we're studying to allow us to put ourselves in position to use the tools God has given us. Barb Roos here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website, barbroose.com. Well, Travis Weber, director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council, talked with me recently, spotlighting a line of questioning during the confirmation hearings for now Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, dealing with issues relative to his religious faith, feeding concerns of a religious litmus test for nominees. Here now is Travis Weber. I do think this is a disturbing trend that we are seeing, and the the Booker-Pompeo exchange is the latest indication of it. uh, basically, you know, Mike Pompeo was there ready to discuss how he's going to be our nation's top diplomat, dealing with serious question, uh, serious issues around the world, uh, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Syria, and elsewhere, and uh, focused on how he was going to best accomplish um, uh, the foreign relations of the United States and represent the United States on the world stage. In the midst of all this, uh, Senator Booker starts quizzing him on his views on marriage and sexuality and basically putting him on the spot and saying, do you still agree with this? Do you still agree with that? And uh, the the implication being, if you don't uh, toe the line that I'm presenting, that you're not acceptable as Secretary of State, really portraying himself as as imposing a litmus test on uh, nominees, on Mike Pompeo in this instance, and uh, for matters that are really quite irrelevant to the job, yet nevertheless are aimed at a historic Christian teaching on matters of sexuality and marriage. So uh, imposing this test uh, the, uh, on the issue of, of the Christian worldview on marriage and sexuality on um, any nominee for public office really seemed to be what was occurring here. Well, and as FRC observed this trend, I also understand that there was a maybe an attempt to paint Mr. Pompeo as being somehow anti-Muslim as well? Was that also part of the questioning? Yeah, that was part of it, too, uh, from Senator Booker and others. And I've written about this in an op-ed in the Hill newspaper um, last week. Basically, um, Mike Pompeo had called upon Muslim communities to denounce terrorism. I mean, this is part of a, a, a long-established um, uh, strategy, if you will, or, or approach to the issue, recognizing that terrorists have religious roots, and to the degree those religious roots are um, within Islam, you need credibility from those within Islam, Islamic teachers, to address that issue in order to deal with the ideology itself. So he's part of a well-established approach to this issue, which 
um, even the this the you know you have a variety of people on different sides of the aisle. Think tanks like the Center for Strategic and International Studies calling attention to the the need for religious voices on these issues. So the point is, is this is the right and reasonable and proper approach to terrorism in the long term, recognizing the role that religious and Muslim leaders play in this. And there are some of these voices out there, but we need to encourage others to denounce terrorism. So that's what Mike Pompeo was doing. And yet Senator Booker is trying to paint him as, um, uh, and, you know, against Muslims by, by uh, making these statements. It's kind of ridiculous. And as Mike Pompeo himself pointed out, as CIA director, uh, the agency has saved thousands of Muslim lives. He worked with Muslims around the world combating terrorism and has good relationships with them. So he really exposed this as, as a joke uh, to, to try to paint him as somehow unable to work with Muslims because he made these comments. It's, it's quite a joke, but unfortunately could get political traction with some, and, and that's what uh, uh, Senator Booker's is trying to do. Travis Weber here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Glenn Lutchens, a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's a counselor for Focus on the Family and offered some insight for those who are dealing with caring for elderly parents. Here now is Glenn Lutchens. It's a type of topic where it's easy to avoid it. Who wants to talk about death and dying or you know, what kind of care a person may need as they're getting older? And yet I, I think if people talk about it kind of in, in the midst of a situation of, of calmness where it's not, in a sense, necessary yet, then when a situation does come about where maybe care is needed or decisions as far as the care that a person does need can be done, and, and it's going to be much more constructive to approach it in that in that way we it's important to honor uh our parents i think that's there's a biblical mandate for that as far as honoring them um but it also becomes important to realize that honoring them doesn't necessarily mean obeying them at that particular point in a parent's you know in a parent's life and in an adult child's life as well Let's talk about those years where you perhaps have an adult child and his or her parent or parents are are facing those transitional times, maybe not being able to function like they once did. What do you find to be some of the common challenges that those that are in that stage of life are facing? The loss of control and power uh, is a big one. I think that's what can often fuel denial. Um, people who want to continue driving, maybe at a, a at an age or at a, a mental capacity where that is not safest for them or other people. And so a lot of times people will just, you know, they want to keep things the same. They want to live in their home as long as they can. Understandable. That's a, that's a positive if they can do that. Um, but it really is going to vary as far as if that's going to be in their best interest or not to be able to, to do that. Well, let's talk about that whole issue with respect to the home. That can be a really challenging topic of conversation and uh, perhaps not the most amiable conversation topic, I would imagine, at some time. So how does one help to see his or her parents or help parents to see that, well, there needs to be a transition here? I think... If it's a situation where a person can maybe just, even without saying anything, assess the living situation. What are the number of stairs that are present? What are the potential safety facets 
that are that are present or the lack of, of safety and just kind of get a, a mental map of that. Then if they bring it up, and again, I realize it's going to be a challenge. The, the parent is going to often want to, you know, stay in that, in that place and, and feels, will probably tend to minimize um, the, the safety hazards that are present. One, one thing that can help mitigate that is if somebody may be called in who's neutral, not a part of the family, who is a professional, uh, people can, um, you know, make contact with some, you know, senior um, care uh, facilities or, or can just talk with someone who might be able to come to the home and give a professional assessment of what they see, um, which can take some of the emotion out of it. I mean, I realize it's not going to be easy even that way. There is the sorrow of seeing one's parents in that condition. So speak to that, if you would. What what scripture would bring and, and what sort of words of comfort and hope that you would offer to those in that in that stage of their lives? Well, and I can speak to this from personal experience. My mother in particular, my mom and dad have both died, have gone to be with the Lord, but my mother experienced a significant level of dementia towards the end of her life. And um, so seeing the woman who she was, she was a woman who had a heart for Jesus, um, you know, as she raised us and uh, seeing, you know, just the, the lack of focus, the she, it was never a situation where she didn't know who I was, but just some of the things that the dementia brought on. And, and I think it's, it's helpful to have kind of in our minds the before and after of the individual. Who was this person in their, you know, cognizant ability to, to, to be focused and to love and to laugh and communicate? You know, who was mom or who was dad at the, you know, kind of prime of their life? But then also realizing that, that has changed. Uh, I often think of the verse in uh, Matthew 5, 4, where Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And when we're able to see where a parent is now and where they were, um, there's going to be some grief. There's going to be some sorrow. But I think that that's a really crucial element to uh, experience. Glenn Lutchens here on The Intersection. The Focus on the Family website is focusonthefamily.com. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info. When you visit the homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can subscribe to the Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. And you can access the Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more at faithradio.org. When you visit meetinghouseonline.info, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content, including content from the 2018 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.